0: Father, I pray by your grace that not a a word, not an image, not an example, not an application that I'd like to share would distract from your truth, that it would only illuminate it. Help us, Lord, be the church you told us to be in your word, in Christ's name, amen. Amen. If you've been in church for a while, even a few years, you might have already noticed not everybody makes it. It's a long journey through the Christian life. People come to faith in Christ, they trust Him, and then they're subject as all new relationships are to this idealistic phase that now I have Christ, now my sins are forgiven, now all my problems are over. And those of you who have been following Jesus, is that true? When you come to Jesus are all your problems over? No, in some sense, you've got a whole new set of problems that are just beginning. But they 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 matter. They're eternally important. It's, you're not going to waste your life on dumb things anymore if you're following Jesus. But as people start following Jesus, through this life, there's all kinds of temptations and discouragements along the way. There are too many distractions to count. Too many unfaithful Christians to meet. Sometimes, sadly, pastors themselves are the source of disappointment. And we see that in the paper or on the internet practically every week now. Someone who once stood with an open Bible as I am this morning and told God's people as just another one of God's saved children, here's what God told us to do, let's go get them. Somehow, that person, he fell away. He was exposed as a hypocrite. Sometimes Christians are involved in church fights, and sometimes it's just two or three families or two or three individuals that are fighting, but it spreads through the whole church, and it makes everybody so tired, so discouraged, so disillusioned, so embittered that not everybody makes it. That and the scourge of secret sin or you're not able to overcome, you're not able to master your temptations. The Bible says that along with temptation, God is faithful and will provide an escape, but there comes a time in all of our lives where we ignore the escape that God has provided, we embrace the temptation instead, and sometimes that gets dragged out into public. And you're humiliated, you're embarrassed. And people quietly fade away. It's not nearly like this in the Churches outside of the United States that I was familiar with growing up and serving as a missionary, but in America with our churchianity culture, we've made it all too easy for people simply to slip out the back door, get discouraged, get embittered, get wounded, and leave. And you have these conversations, hey, whatever happened? To oh, I haven't seen them in months. And then if you dig a little bit further, you find one of these sad stories. Well, if you've known it, God certainly knew it. If you've seen it, God foresaw it. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul tells a church that was divided and fighting each other, in fact, some churches that were on the edge of giving up on Jesus altogether, they're tearing each other apart because they've been infected not by discouragement, but by, by false teaching. Someone has come in and said... If you're really going to be saved, if you're really going to be forgiven, you better better get circumcised, you better keep the law, you better be a practicing Jew, basically. And Paul, in the angriest letter he ever wrote, if you read the first chapter, he doesn't even say that he's thankful for them. In all his other letters, he does. Galatians 1, he just says hello and gets right to it. And he even says, if I or even an angel from heaven come to you with another message, with another gospel, let them be accursed. He says it twice. So with that kind of church fight, we're not talking about arguing over carpet color or music preference. People are ripping each other apart, and at the end of the letter, Paul gives them some very timely instructions on what they're to do for one another, how Christians, and specifically how we at Crosspoint are to look out for one another on this long, dangerous, distracted journey of trying to follow Jesus. Galatians chapter 6, and this is going to be slightly conversational. I'm going to ask you some questions from time to time, so stay on your toes. Ready? Ready? Brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. you've been in church for as long as I have, maybe you've heard this cliche, the Christian army is the only army that shoots its wounded. Have you heard that one? Ever seen it happen? Do you enjoy it? It's ugly, isn't it? What's that? Oh, you fell into sin? You weren't perfect like we are? Hold still for just a second. We'll take care of that broken leg right now. And it's an execution. Brothers, if any of you is caught in sin, ensnared, overcome, trapped, pursued, and brought down, that's all in the Greek language that Paul was using. Those are the ideas. Someone was overcome, someone was run down, someone was ensnared. In this translation of the Bible, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should do what? Kill him? Start a blog about him? What should we do? We should restore him. If anyone is caught in a transgression, he should be restored. What does that mean? It means to be brought into a peaceful and enjoyable relationship with God and other people. It doesn't necessarily mean, I don't have time to go into that, it doesn't necessarily mean that that person will be restored to the same function they once enjoyed. But it does mean that anyone caught in any kind of sin can, and here's the important part for churches, should be restored to fellowship with the God who loves them and the people they've wounded. That should be the effort. The effort should be restoration. What does this mean for us at Crosspoint? Well, it means this. It means that we should be the kind of church that is trying to make sure that no one overcome by sin gets left behind. No one gets left behind. Heard that phrase before? No man left behind? That's embedded deeply into our culture. It's one of the things I really started picking up on when we moved back to the United States all those years ago. And I've I have had reverse culture shock, so I'm reacclimating. I look like a gringo, but I'm not, right? I'm <laughs> Mexican on the inside because of all the time I spent in Mexico. And it eventually dawned on me that this idea of no man left behind, which even became part of a legislative package to help school kids in the Bush administration, no child left behind, that idea, that little slogan was actually embedded in our military culture. And it's pretty unique. I have a, a pretty good friendship with someone who just retired after 20 years at the very tip of the spear, as they say, and really dangerous Special operations. So I thought, I'll, I'll ask him what that means to someone who spent most of his adult life in combat. I keep hearing this phrase, what's that do for you, the soldier? Well, he gave me an incredible, he's a bright guy, He gave me a very long and thoughtful answer. He told me, for one thing, historically it's rare In the old days, soldiers were treated as commodities, and the main job of the officers was to keep an eye on the men, and the main task the men gave themselves was to desert if they could, stay off the line at all costs. So he said there's this interlocking circle of paranoia where everybody's afraid, and they're all keeping an eye on each other. We've created a different military culture. Here's how he explained it to me. This idea that no one is left behind, he said, is so basic, it's so core to our culture that it doesn't even need to be said aloud anymore. We never plan and we never train with the idea that somebody is going to be left behind. One of the foundational truths, he said, of the military is we're all going to come home. He said the primary way that that philosophy enables the soldier is that it moves the impetus of protection, listen, from the individual to the group. The safety of one is the responsibility of everyone. You are accountable to that person and their family. The core of it is that there is an inherent value and dignity to life, and we don't spend it cheaply. And that's the military. If that's the military, how much more true should that be for the household of God? We don't have the privilege, it's not our option to say, well, you messed up. You failed God, you embarrassed us, you hurt one of us, we're done with you. No, Paul says, Galatians 6, verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should, what now? Restore him. And we're studying the Bible together. Here's one of the questions I have for you. Who is supposed to do that? Who does the restoration? You who are spiritual, so not just anybody. Some of the ugliest church fights I've ever seen came from this part of the verse being disobeyed. Someone embarrassed themselves publicly. Perhaps it was a leader, and there were meetings, and people who were obviously spiritually immature started putting their oar in and giving their opinion. No, Paul says the task of spiritual restoration belongs to those who are godly, who are spiritually mature. Why? Because they'll do it in the right way. They'll see the truth of the situation and pursue it with loving courage. They won't be too harsh and condemning. They won't be permissive either. They won't become corrupt saying, well, this is one of ours, this is our guy, we love him, we know his wife, he's kind of a pinhead, but his wife is wonderful. Let's keep this quiet. No, spiritual people will not do that. They will insist on both grace and truth. They won't be harsh, they won't be condemning, they won't be hasty. They'll walk in the difficult path of wisdom between the ditches of permissiveness and indulgence on the one hand and harsh legalism and condemning people on the other. That restoration should be done by spiritually mature people with a certain kind of attitude. Keep looking at the verse. What is the attitude of those who are doing the restoring? In a spirit of? Gentleness, because they're at risk too. What does the verse say? What might happen to the people who are doing the restoring? They might be tempted as well. Tempted to what? Maybe to the same sin. Maybe to self-righteousness. Maybe to protect the brand. Can I speak very clearly for a moment? If you haven't seen it already, you've seen it in the news, and you If you haven't seen it in the news already, you may soon. The evangelical church, and practically every denomination, is now being exposed as, on occasion at least, concealing the very worst kinds of crimes, even crimes against children. Houston Chronicle, other news media outlets, are giving this brutal exposure saying that some depraved people picked on children and other people who were not so driven had a meeting in the clear light of day and did something corrupt. They decided to protect the brand and it's ungodly. Spiritual people will not allow that to happen. They will deal with truth. Listen, I'm your pastor. your senior pastor. One on a pastoral team. Pastors have even special conditions. It says, and Paul writes to Timothy, pastors who persist in sin, in other words, who are unrepentant when confronted privately, who won't listen to reason, Paul says, rebuke those pastors in front of everybody so that everybody will be afraid. God being my witness and God being my help, I'm committed to never blowing it and embarrassing you, Jesus, and my family. But if I ever do, deal with me scripturally. Seek to restore me, but don't cut me any slack that God wouldn't cut me. That's the purpose of restoration. The effort of restoration is a continuation, a further expression of the saving grace of Jesus that leaves the 99 safely in the fold and goes looking for the one wayward sheep. The good shepherd does not shrug his shoulders and say, ah, well, I still got 99. Stupid sheep shouldn't have wandered off. I guess they'll get what's coming. It, it'll get what's coming to it. No. The good shepherd goes at risk to himself to bring the one back. He doesn't leave it to be lost, nor does he condemn it. And he certainly doesn't deny that it's lost and in need of rescue and restoration again. We need to be the kind of church that makes sure that no one on this long journey that we're taking together ever gets left behind by legalism, by self-righteousness. Secondly, Galatians 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What's that about? Paul's just continuing to explain this restoration effort. He says, as you take this long journey together, you will occasionally encounter burdens. And the word, the idea here is that in life there are crushing burdens that if a person has to bear them alone, they'll ruin him, they'll break him. And what we are to do is bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the suggestion of Christ. Is that what it says? Jesus had a pretty good idea. You should try it out if it's convenient. Is that what it says? No. This family of churches in Galatia, this individual family in Huntington Beach, we are to be the kind of people who bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Christ Jesus has commanded us When it comes to these moral failures and the crushing burdens of life that threaten to destroy someone, when they encounter that kind of pressure and that kind of weight, we run to them and we put a shoulder under the burden so that they can go on. Bear one another's burdens, Paul said, and so fulfill the law of Christ. I know that's what he had in mind. He has in mind patience and kindness to continue to work with each other and talk to one another and pray for each other so that people can be restored and keep going with Jesus. Look at Galatians 5, 13-15. In fact, you're going to read this with me. Notice this is just before what we're reading in the Bible. In other words, these are the things that are on Paul's mind right before he tells them clearly, the way you are to act in the family you're in is to restore each other. Well, I kind of took a turn there at the end, didn't it? (laughs) Now, why is that? You're reading this Hallmark card-worthy, beautiful Scripture. Through love, serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Beautiful. Again, this is the law. This is God's commandment to us. And then he says... But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You ever been in a church where that started happening? They started eating each other alive. Why are those two concepts right next to each other? Because it's always one or the other. If you were not in love serving someone else, you'll eventually start chewing on someone else. Those are the two options, it's never neutral. The commandment of Christ is, love your neighbor as yourself. Use the freedom that God has given you not to do whatever you want. Not as, a, not as an opportunity for the flesh. If there is an American misunderstanding it's of freedom, it's that. That God gave you freedom so that you could do whatever you please. No, God gave you freedom so that you could do what's right. You would do what pleases Him. You would do what marks eternity. You would do something that is eternally significant and not waste your life. That's what every Christian is to be doing. So, if I may be practical as a pastor, who are you serving in love? Can you identify people in this community? Because if if you can't, we need you. Do you notice how long it took us to get through announcements this morning? There are these big meetings, sometimes passionate meetings, What do we announce and how long will it take? You know why that is? There's so much to do. There's something going on through the life of this church seven days a week. We've got people feeding hungry families, we've got people discipling and evangelizing. I can't even begin to tell you. In fact, one of the burdens of being a senior pastor is my email inbox is routinely clogged with amazing opportunities but we have to choose some of them. There's a limit to what any one church can do, and there's a limit to what this church is doing because some of you aren't quite sure who you should be serving in love. You're committed to the idea. You understand the principle. You're in on that idea, but when it comes down practically where you could show me your calendar and say, who are you going to serve in love and when is that going to happen, you don't really have a target. You don't have a deadline for it. Paul says this is why God in Christ gave us freedom, and if you're not doing that, eventually churches start biting and devouring one another. I even had a friend years ago, I never forgot it, said that he keeps an eye on the bulletin and, and when the church is ahead on budget, he stops giving. Can I speak plainly about that? That's crazy. The figure in the bulletin is only a prayerful plan. If there's more resources, namely people, time, and money, there's so much more that we can do and there's so much more that we should do because the heart of the gospel is you have been saved by God to love God and serve Him and serve the people around you. And that involves when you're on this long journey together, you love one another and you bear with one another. This is on Paul's mind over and over again. He makes it even clearer perhaps in Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What's this about? Simply this. If you're spiritually mature, if you're spiritually strong, you have an obligation to be patient and loving with those who are not as strong and mature as you are. You know what usually tears churches up? Those who believe themselves to be spiritually strong and mature condemn those they think less spiritual and more immature. Very specifically, in a church family, what this often looks like is impatience with young Christians. Young in the faith and young in age. Let me be really clear on that. The children and the young people of this church, junior high school students, elementary students, high school students, they're not the future. They're the present. Their little souls matter to Jesus right now. They're making decisions that matter right now. In fact, some of them are on the edge of making decisions at 14 years of age to give themselves fully to Jesus, and they're going to be the best Christian you've ever met. But what will mean the world to them and make it possible, humanly speaking, is for someone to bear with them when they don't get it all, when they make youthful mistakes, when they make stupid, overconfident mistakes in their youthful exuberance. When they're unwise or harsh or sarcastic or difficult, those who are strong are to bear with those who are weak, not to please themselves, but to build that young, weak person up so that that person who already matters to God can someday be stronger than their mentor. What am I trying to tell you this? Spiritual maturity is demonstrated by patience and love for those we know are spiritually immature. Immature. That's the idea of restoration. Those who see weakness and see failure don't come down like modern-day Pharisees and say, well, you messed up. That was stupid. We'll never let you do anything again. No, they come alongside that person and, knowing how hard it will be to hear a word of correction. They say it with love. And they speak of hope for the future and learning from this experience and being better and more useful to God in the future if they will only respond now. Listen, I'm by the way people speak in America, I'm middle-aged. Truthfully, if I look at an actuarial table, I'm mostly dead, okay? <laughs> middle-aged is really just a euphemism. I'm convinced the most useful thing I could do with whatever time I have left is giving all I have and the energy and the wisdom I've accumulated and whatever I have left to those who are coming right behind me. Because I'll soon be gone and they must continue faithfully. Spiritual maturity always draws close to those who are spiritually immature. This is very clear in a family, and we are a family. When the two-year-old keeps lisping and stumbling and with clumsy, fat little hands keeps spilling the milk and doing youthfully exuberant things, like painting the walls, does any loving parent say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you speak clearly? What is that, a lisp? (laughs) You know how much these walls cost? Do you have any idea the cost of paint? If you spill the milk once more, we're never going to give you milk again. You know what that is? That's abuse. So evident in a family home. Listen, this is the family of God. Younger people in the faith, younger people in age, 17, 23, 27 years old, can only be encouraged to strive greatly for God if they know that the people who are presumably older and more mature than they are will be there to support them and encourage them if and when they fail. Because guess what? They'll fail. As a young pastor, I won't even repeat it because I'm still embarrassed about it, I said some of the dumbest things ever said in the English language from right here. And my senior pastor at the time let me know in no uncertain but very loving terms that that was one of the dumbest things ever said in any congregation, and he took it personally because I said it to ours, but he didn't break my heart and discourage me let me get right back up there again and try again and try again. And I want to do that, and I want us to create a culture where those of us who presumably are spiritually mature show patience and love for those who are still growing. Now let's be done with this passage. Look in verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, if you think you're too important to bear someone's burden, you're fooling yourself. You're overproud. You're conceited. Every Christian bears the burdens of others. Those who are mature run to put their shoulder under those burdens. But then he changes his tune a little bit. Look at this. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Question for you. What did Paul tell us to do in verse 2? Bear one another's burdens. What did he tell us to do in verse 5? Each one will have to bear his own load. Did Paul just contradict himself? I told you I had questions. (laughs) Paul have any idea what he's talking about? Verse 1, he says, when one of you is brought down, caught, run down from behind, and ensnared in sin, those of you who are spiritual, gently restore him. In fact, as a congregation, as a family, here's what you're supposed to be doing. Bear one another's burdens because that's what Christ commanded. And then he says, but don't think you're above this but every one of you, verse 4, let him test his own work and then his reason to, be, to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor for each will have to bear his own load well, Paul you just told us to bear one another's burdens and in verse 5 you seem to be saying, every man for himself, what is it? I'll oh, think of it like this, suppose you and I as a group are going on a 20 mile hike, doesn't that sound great? <laughs> Peter's Canyon maybe? Have Pastor Jim get out there on the bike, show us the way, show us where the good trail is. Those of us who are scared of bikes, we're just going to go on foot. We're going to go on a 20 mile hike together. And because it's 20 miles and there's a good climb, we're going to pack enough food and water to actually have a couple meals along the way. Sound good? We should do that. There is a hiking group, by the way. We should do that sometime. Now, If we're going to do that, if you've ever hiked, especially a long hike like that, you know how it works. Everybody has to take their own backpack. You carry your own load into the woods. It wouldn't make much sense for you to say, Bruce, I'd love to go, but I want you to put my pack on your chest and carry your own on your back, because you are supposed to serve me in love, and I'd like you really to double pack it for 20 miles. (laughs) I would lovingly tell you, sorry, you can't go. We need water, we need food, if you're not strong enough, healthy enough to carry your own pack, we'll do something else fun another time, but you can't go 20 miles with us. That's what Paul means, and that's why the word is different, verse 5, each one will have to bear his own load. Everybody has to take care of their own responsibilities. Previous verses, you shouldn't be concerned about your neighbor's work and how it's going for him you should concern yourself with your own responsibilities and take care of your own life. Number three, here's how we should treat each other. We should be the kind of congregation where every person, first of all, we we make sure that no one gets left behind. Number two, we bear one another's burdens. And number three, we take responsibility for our own life's work. But We set off, there's 12 of us, on this 20-mile hike. Everyone's carrying their own food and water. Everyone's doing well, but then, unfortunately, a tree falls on one of us. (laughs) Would it then be reasonable to say, look, we are Americans, and we are pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you knew that when you came into the woods with us. So what you need to do is get your hands square under your shoulders, Make sure you use your back and do a solid good form push-up and we think you can get that tree off yourself. (laughs) That'd be reasonable? No. Everybody carries their own load, but when the burdens become too much, everybody rushes to help and remove the crushing weight from the person who has been brought down by sin, weakness, ignorance, or inexperience. This is vitally important. And I wish the whole country could understand it. What I'm trying to argue for and what the Bible is showing you here is a wonderful and beautiful balance. The way you love someone genuinely is this. You love someone when you are willing to help them with their crushing burdens, but at the same time, you insist that they pull their own weight. That's love. See, when you do for someone else what they should do for themselves, you're not loving them. You're delaying them. You're keeping them in perpetual immaturity because no one should ever have done for them what they should and can do for themselves. Vitally important. There's a millennial conflict you may have heard of. The so-called boomers are picking on the millennials in Generation Z. Have you heard of this? I'm totally excluded because I'm Generation X and nobody pays any attention to us. Nobody paid attention to us when we were coming up. Nobody does it now. You probably haven't even heard the term in a while. Here's at least part of the problem. For a whole bunch of cultural reasons that aren't worth getting into, people have continually protected and, frankly, enabled and delayed their own children and refuse to let them face their own responsibilities in a gradual and reasonable and doable way. And then when they're in their 30s, they're yelling at them that it's time to grow up. Mom, Dad, Grandma, may I humbly, as a parent of adults, ask you, if you're demanding maturity now, did you do things gradually over the period of years to enable and strengthen the maturity that you're now expecting? This is biblical wisdom. Paul says you're each responsible for your own lives. You each have to evaluate your own work. There's no point in discussing and boasting or criticizing what somebody else is doing. Every one of you has to carry your own weight, your own load. And all of you, as you pursue personal responsibility and you make yourself responsible for your own faith, there will be distractions, there will be temptations, and some of you may be crushed. And when you're crushed, someone will come to help you in love. I volunteer as a law enforcement chaplain. It's some of the best training I've ever received. And the most surprising piece was the training we received for crisis intervention. When someone has received overwhelmingly catastrophic news, the basic principle is this. Even when you've given people the worst news they'll ever have in their lives, you don't do one thing for them, even in that moment, that they could actually do for themselves. If phone calls need to be made, you help them and encourage them to find their phone, and you sit with them and offer them water and give them a hug as they make the phone calls. Seems cruel. Why has that protocol been developed through painful experience? Because they have learned, even in the worst circumstances, it empowers and blesses and dignifies people to take responsibility for their own lives, even in the most extreme cases. What do churches do? Churches that aren't paying attention to this passage, and we're prayerfully committed to not being one of them, at least not anymore. We tell you over and over again, Jesus saved you. You are individually responsible for your faith. You're individually responsible for the family that God has given you, for the resources that God has placed in your hand. We're here to encourage you and cheer you and teach you and pray for you and cry with you. And when the burdens are too great we will be there for you and we will be there with you because no one walks alone and no one is left behind. What am I trying to tell you? That we want to be the kind of church family that whatever comes, we're here for each other. Let's pray. Maybe a broken relationship came to mind Maybe something stung a little bit about you needing to take responsibility for yourself. Pursue restoration with another. Get involved in loving and serving another person in love. Tell the Lord about it, please. Here's our prayer for commitment. We'll all follow Jesus. We'll encourage each other. We'll look for each other. We'll go after one another. But no one goes alone. No one bears their burdens all alone. No one's left behind. This offering is an expression of that whether you give it here or online, however you choose and whenever you choose to give. You're helping bear the burden of a spiritual family. You're looking beyond yourself that other people who currently don't know Jesus will be saved, maybe this week, because of your financial support for the ministries. And there are many of them that brought the gospel to them. Lord, this is the kind of family we want to be. One that pursues you with its all, with its whole heart. That calls sin, sin, and holiness, holiness. But always with gentleness, always with grace, always with humility. Knowing that today I get to help carry a burden. Tomorrow that crushing weight may be on me. Today we may help restore another. A week later we may be the ones ensnared. Help us love each other look out for one another. Love each other as you first loved us. And receive this offering and this praise in Jesus' name.